This is Reboot Ed, the podcast where we talk big ideas and issues in education and hardly ever come up with any answers. I'm Andrew Schwab, your co-host, and I am joined by... Mike Vollmert, the other co-host. What's up, Mike? You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And it's really good that we've got a tagline that says we're going to talk about big issues and not come up with any answers because this COVID stuff is really, really frustrating. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Um, well, and I appreciate you uh, making the time to do three, po- what is this, two podcasts in a week? Two podcasts in a week. Two but podcasts you know, in a week. Um, we had a great talk with Jen Roberts about, you know, reopening schools and the issues and kind of the viewpoint from the teacher standpoint. Um, shortly after that podcast, the County Office of Education released their framework for reopening schools. And um, so you're, t- you're a, talking about your your county uh, office, Ventura, Ventura, county, yeah. Yeah, Ventura County office. I think you've had yours for a while. Um, yeah. Oh, which reminds me, I, I would like in this episode to, to make a disclaimer that says um, I, I do work for a school district and you're retired, but we're going to yes. be talking about a bunch of stuff. And, and I'm talking more just from a general perspective around challenges that all school districts are facing, not necessarily things specific to my district. Um, so I just want to throw that right. disclaimer out there because um, while, while certainly what we're discussing is relevant in my district, there I've also talked to many other districts and, and there are, uh, are um, challenges across all districts uh, up here and around the state. So yeah, this is and not specifically what's going on in, in my my district. Exactly. That, and the same is, is true. I mean, you're in Northern California um, or for more geographically astute people, Central California. Um, and I'm in Southern California. But the interesting thing is um, every, every county has pretty much been told by the state to do what they think is best for their county. And the first thing you read in the county stuff is every district should do what they think is best for their district. So what happens is there's this sort of fluid kind of uh, guideline with a bunch of considerations and information. But districts are struggling everywhere to figure out what what to do. Um, And there are multiple facets to this whole question. There's a personnel facet. There's a parent facet. There's a leadership facet. Um, and none of those have any really clear or what I would call um, good solutions to this problem. If we bring kids back to school, we're going to see infection rates go up. Uh, and we've got examples of that all over the country. Yeah. Um, well, and I think, you know, as I said, I think in the last episode when we were talking to Jen a bit was, you know, there's there's also conflicting information and guidelines um, have different um, parameters, recommendations. It's it's There isn't really a uniform message. Um, and I think you hit the nail on the head. It seems to be that at each successive layer, it's, well, here's guidelines, but then you have to make a decision that's that makes sense for you. 
which on on one hand is good, right? Because local conditions are different, but also, but but it's challenging because um, the guidelines don't seem to provide enough um, parameters to to make me feel good about the making decisions about them, particularly because they also change. And, and that's the other thing you, you mentioned fluid. I think that's a perfect description of what's going on right now. Things are very fluid. And from one week to the next, we may have different information. And I think if you know, if you watch Cuomo's um, uh, news press conferences in New York, you know, he talks about facts and the facts that we know today were not the facts that we knew two weeks ago, and they may not be the same facts that we know two weeks from now. And, and all of that combined, um, I think is, is just put districts in a really difficult place. And it's funny cause I've, I've been watching the guidance come out from different counties. And it's also interesting that the guidance seems to come out at different times from different counties. Right. Um, and there's, there's similarities, but then there's differences and the differences are just enough to make you go kind of like, Hmm. Exactly. Um, you, you can see sort of, general guidelines that that counties got from i'm I'm not sure the state um or from cdc or maybe a little bit of both um and and they all run through the same sort of threads but then it gets down to the point where there are some specifics that are significantly different county to county um and what's interesting is like if you compare I, I took a look at Santa Clara County's guidelines and Ventura County's guidelines, and there's a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of differences. What's consistent is that both Santa Clara County and Ventura County are in that group of 19 counties where um, the infection rate was going up uh, significantly enough that uh, the governor had to order businesses to close again and and institute some limitations on that whole economic opening. Right. Um, well, but but for us, that was last week because we're no longer in that list. And, and we actually we have a new county. still are. Right. You guys still are. We have a new county um, health order coming into effect on Monday, which is going to allow things to open up more, which seems a bit counterintuitive to the actual, you know, things on the ground where we still see numbers going up. So, you right. know, I just realized something as, as we were talking about that. We're probably not supposed to be looking at the guidelines from different counties that's that's probably what's causing our uh the uh was it incongruity or the disconnect we're we're supposed to just look at the guidelines from within our county because then then we wouldn't have all these questions about why things are just different enough to not start to make sense so stop reading yeah okay stop reading (laughs) Uh, but uh, but the interesting thing is it's the same virus it's the same sort of um, considerations about, um, you know, just take the adults, for example. Um, they've declared that educators are essential workers. So the expectation is that um, we're going to open schools and all things being equal, we'll bring the kids in. Um, but then there are things like providing PPE and that kind of stuff that, I'm not sure exactly, like even where the funding for that's going to come from. Um, yeah. Well, but I, I know um, I know you're retired, so you may have missed this one. But um, the state is has committed to providing PPE for schools 
um, an initial 60-day supply, and, and that has actually started showing up at some counties, I believe. So, so there's a recognition there, but but 60 days doesn't get us through a whole year. That's so, my point. So, so districts are going to have to look for PPP, PPE, and I can also tell you, having read way too much news, you know, we're starting to see shortages in PPE again in some mm -hmm. of the states that are really in bad shape right now. Which means I can remember when this whole thing first started, you know, up here in Santa Clara, they were asking for donations of PPE to go to the hospitals and for right. for our uh, medical people. And so yeah. we, you know, we went, I know districts, schools, businesses, everybody went and took the PPE they had and started, you know, donating it. And I think that was before we realized we were all going to need it at some yeah. point. Hey. But wait a minute. Um, but if there's a shortage of PPE, you know. I'm sure we'll, we'll, we have to get it if we're gonna, if if schools have to open. We have to have PPE. Now we're just competing. We're competing against hospitals for PPE. So that's just an example of how quickly things change with with what's going on as well. Uh, but you're right. There are certain things that's that are very similar between the guidance. One of them, which I think one of the reasons why um, I was hoping we could talk today, was this this concept of um, class size. And when we think about reopening schools in a socially distanced environment, one of the big challenges and one of the big pieces of information we were kind of missing up until maybe last week was how many kids could we put in a classroom, right? Yeah. And we we were kind of anticipating because we were looking at, you know, the messaging around social distancing, six feet. Um, if you look at the child care, daycare kind of guidance up here, I don't know what it is down there, but up here it's a hard limit of 12 kids for childcare and over summer, that um, that really has implications for how you could potentially reopen schools in the fall, right? I mean, it's it, it, 12 kids is not a typical class size. Let's just put it that way. Well, 12 kids is at best half of a class and yeah. probably more commonly a third of a class-ish. Yeah. yeah. Um, so now you're talking about developing a schedule that uh, rotates kids in in some some manner, um, but all of the guidelines, like here in Ventura County, they're they're talking about these stable cohorts of kids. Well, well how, how does that work? That I've, that's that's the thing that I think threw a lot of folks for a loop last week when these things came out. Or maybe it was just the week before. I don't know. Time has a different meaning now. Yeah. Um, there was no hard cap number. And so now when, you know, as you were saying before, the decisions are being left up to, to the local districts to interpret. What does it mean, especially when they use words like when feasible, where practicable, where possible? Um and, and really the guidance that, you know, we received up here as, as districts from our county um, health department focuses more in the elementary around just maintaining a stable cohort and less concern around social distancing within that stable cohort, um, including not, not even requiring masks in the classroom. And, and I think after having months of being told social distancing and then weeks of being told you got to wear a mask, um, to see that come out was a bit of a shock um to a lot of people and i know you know that the there's still a discussion about what we know and what we don't know about how kids you know transmit and react to the virus but i just think from a from a 
kind of uh, information standpoint, I don't know that everybody was prepared to hear that, uh, that it, the message that it would be okay to have, you know, more than a dozen students potentially in a classroom at the same time without doing social distancing. And so that was a bit of a, a shock. But then at the middle school and high school level, social distancing is still worse. a thing, right? Because it gets because social distancing is is still a thing, because at least in our county guidelines, it said that the feeling is that uh, teens re- re- respond more like adults to this. So, socially distanced, right. six feet apart, wearing masks. And as you said, when we get into high school, middle school. Um, you know, our typical classrooms, I don't know about districts down there, but, you know, um, looking at districts up here, I, I, I'm pretty sure across the state, we're all around 960 square feet. You know, that usually is between, depending on what district, 30 to 40 kids in a classroom. Um, if you do the math and you measure the distance and you look at your desks, you're probably somewhere around 12 to 15 socially distanced desks. So that that's a huge uh challenge which is which is more in line with what we were kind of expecting down in the elementary as well but at the elementary um you know the class sizes are smaller so it really does represent like half a class anyway um when looking at the guidance at the middle schools the other thing that really i think was interesting was and again it's it's one of these like there's a kind of a disconnect and you have to go hmm um so socially distancing, but cohorts aren't really a thing. Although they, there was in our guidance up here, I think it was recommendations to try to maintain a stable cohort with middle school. But you and I, as kind of high school people who migrated to elementary at some point, um, know the challenges of trying to maintain a stable cohort when you're looking to build a schedule at a high school or middle school because the kids don't all stay in the same room all day. Yeah, and they all pack out into tight hallways and um, walk spaces where maintaining a six-foot uh, social distance is really not practical. So now you have to stagger when students leave various classrooms um, in order to make sure that you can, you can have adequate space in the areas where students move from one room to another or you have to create some sort of um, program where the students stay in the same classroom with the same cohort, but that's not the way our high schools and middle schools are are structured or scheduled. Um, it's a completely different approach that I don't think we're ready for. And by the way, in, in Ventura County, um, they don't make a distinction between high school and middle school. They talk about um, uh, creating smaller student educator cohorts and maintaining uh, six feet of uh, distance between all individuals in a classroom. Right. So, but I think what they're talking about when they say maintain smaller cohorts are, are my my understanding and, and and having kind of talked to folks around it up here is, you know, if you have a typical middle school, well, let's let's exp- I don't know who's listening. Nobody's listening. So, but just for you and I. You know, a, what we're talking about a cohort in an elementary school is, let's say, a, a cohort of 20 kids. I'll just use that number. And hey, wait a minute. Hey, back up the truck. 
Yeah. You know, when, when we were doing this podcast before, uh, you imposed your, um, your self-exile. Um, we had a, an extensive listening audience of at least two individuals. Yes. Um, I, so I, there's every hope. I, I, I know, but our friends don't count. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, a, a, a cohort at the elementary really means um, a stable group of students. So let's say 20, 20 students, 24 students, whatever that number yeah. happens to be. But they're okay. in the same classroom all day. They, they don't interact with other you know, classrooms or cohorts of students. And, and they're in there with their teacher. Right. So that's a stable cohort. And at the middle school, you know, and, and that and that kind of represents what happens in elementary, although not if you have, um, you know, RTI groups where students go and mix from class classroom, different classrooms by grade level for different levels of support. It, it really breaks down, but it's it's more representative of what elementary could look like at the middle school and the high school. Um, you have students who could have, be in six different classes with six different groups of students, right? Or periods or five mm -hmm. or seven or whatever your per period day is. But the idea is you've got a number of classes every day where you're in with different students. And right. to have a stable cohort means that you're in the same math class with the same group of kids that is then in the same English class that is then in the same science class. And if you're a, let's say like my daughter, who's a, what is, a freshman taking math three, right? So she's, she's in classes with sophomores and juniors, but she then couldn't be in a stable cohort if she's in an advanced math class because she wouldn't be able to take the same English class with those math kids, right? So it, it starts mm -hmm. to break down pretty quick. It breaks down very quickly. And um, the way that they address that, and when we were talking about clarification up here, is, well, basically you then expand the cohort to be, you know, let's say it's, it's and this, this still makes my head hurt when I think about it, but you, you, try, you try to expand the cohort to be like the sixth grade level. So now it's 300 kids instead of 30, right? Uh-huh. Which is which is a big number, and I, I don't know. I've been looking at, and I think I understand why the stable cohort concept. But when I when I think about all the exceptions that they start making to the stable cohort concept, it kind of breaks well, down. Well, yeah, I mean the, the stable cohort content. This is the thing that's bugged me about how we've sort of been approaching this issue from the beginning. There's such a mishmash of imperatives that we're trying to dance around, but we don't want to talk about what those imperatives really are and what they mean. So that stable cohort is so that you can do efficient contact tracing. Hmm. Um, something that, I mean, frankly, we're really not doing a very good job of contact tracing now. And well, when, when you say we, you mean just the country? <laughs> in, yeah. In general? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Just clarify. But the reality is what, what's expected in, in the plans pretty much universally that I've seen is that schools need to have uh, some sort of contact tracing program in place so that if somebody shows up to school and they're uh, symptomatic, in other words, they're screened as having a temperature or other symptoms, uh, we isolate those people, we get them immediately tested. Um, in Ventura County, they've got a provision for some kids to do same-day testing. 
So let's say a child comes to school and um, they're symptomatic. We get them tested. They test positive. It's really easy to identify a stable cohort and figure out who came into contact. In a high school, I have no idea how you do that. And so now you have to sort of extrapolate based on the movement of that kid and the students in all of that student's classes who they came into contact with. And if you start to think about that, pretty soon you're shutting down the whole school mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's no stable cohort when when students are changing their class and they're changing their cohort five or six times per day. Yeah, and, and it's not like there's a cohort team out there that, or a cohort tracing team out there that's going to come in and, and do the tracing for schools. Exactly. That's, that's something that we as school districts would have to. Schools are being expected yeah. to develop that as part of their um, reopening plan. Right. Uh, I, okay. I mean, I don't know where those people are going to come from um, because everybody at a school already has a job. Um, but, you know, be that as it, as it may, um, I think especially in a middle school or high school, uh, contact tracing is going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and, and so, um, if you go back now and look at the CDC guidelines, if, um, if you've got somebody in a building that tests positive and you don't have good contact tracing that you can say, okay, that student only came into contact with these kids in this classroom or in this section of classrooms. Um, then you can shut that small cohort down for, for three to five days, get them all tested, uh, and go from there. But in a high school, as soon as somebody, by those guidelines, as soon as somebody tests positive, you got to shut the whole school down for, for a week. Yeah. Get everybody tested. Well, and that's, that's another thing. I don't, I don't know what it looks like down there, but up here, um, I, I don't know if there's enough testing to handle schools like an entire school population needing to be tested at the moment. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, um, I know nationally it seems like the big the big three testing companies are backlogged because of all the, the surging that's going on and, and that demand. But I have not seen like a comprehensive school testing plan. Um, well, just for fun and giggles, the, the testing company that is doing testing on a, well, I thought it was a walk-in basis, but it's not. It's you have to make an appointment. Um, on Thursday, uh, I went on their website just to kind of see what that process looked like, and I was curious to see, you know, wh- what you have to do in order to get tested. And the website's pretty clear; it's easy to sign up. Um, but then the earliest appointment I could get to, if I wanted to get a COVID test. Um, a nasal pharyngeal swab, you know, to see if yeah, I'm the PCR to see if you actually have, yeah, active to see if I have, have, have yeah. Act, yeah. Uh, the earliest I could get a test was July 20th. Yeah, that's like two weeks from now. Yeah. Week and a half. Yeah. So, I mean, there would have to be a prioritization of testing for, for schools, I would think. And again, I just, I haven't seen that. It's not that, Somebody might not be working on it, but I just haven't seen that. And and you read the news, and it seems like our testing capacity is is already being strained. So, well, I, I don't if mean you're by an NBA player in the bubble. I think you can get tested every day and get the results <laughs> right back, right? 
I did uh, notice that. Yeah, if you're at Disneyland, apparently. Um, so again, that goes. I mean, that's a big issue around prioritization and what do we prioritize as a society. Right. Um, but but getting back to um, thinking about now that we have guidelines and, and recommendations and requirements around, you know, this idea that if we maintain stable cords, we can bring full classes of kids back at the elementary. At the middle school, we well, have to maintain. I didn't say we should. I just said we could. I, I'm, I'm gonna, I was going to head I'm in, a, a, I'm a in clarif- another. I'm going to clarify that. Okay. Okay. Let me get this thought out, and then you can sidetrack it all you want. Um, <laughs> at the middle and high schools, then, that, you know, if we're looking at basically half-size classes or maybe even less, then the challenge becomes how do you run a schedule. And, and a lot of districts, and I've seen a lot of schedules that have been built, because we, everybody was assuming that we would have basically half-size classes. Right. I've seen a lot of schedules that have been built, and, and that's where I want to kind of get in a bit more today. But if you've got another, if you want to talk about something else before we do that, then by all means. Oh, no. I, I would, the, the wrench I was going to throw into that cog is the uh, article that came out um, from CNN yesterday um, where they said that there are, um, it's 24. Four percent of teachers in the United States are uh, are high risk of uh, developing significant complications from COVID. Right. They're over so five. They have diabetic. underlying conditions. Yeah, they have underlying conditions. So, um, when you're talking about building a schedule, you need to talk about a contingency plan that pulls say a quarter of your teaching staff off of that plan uh, well, yes and 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 more so than that there there's a percentage of parents who will, won't feel comfortable sending their kids back right. regardless of what the conditions may be and so that's a that's another yeah. percentage of students or that's a percentage of students who won't who may not be in person that that should be supported online right i mean that's so now you're talking about a schedule that probably more realistically is a third as opposed to a half yeah um well okay and let's let's think about that but take it at a half or take it at a third right what would that look like and and let's do half because i think for me the math is easier when i think in halves a lot of assumptions, a lot, I've heard a lot of people assume that, oh, well, if half, if only half of the kids are showing up, then our classes can be half the size. But the challenge is we still have to educate the other half who aren't coming into the buildings. Yes, we do. And we don't have more teachers. Correct. So, so it's not like we're going to create, you know, twice the number of classes, even though half would be online and half would be in person. We have, you know, a number of students per teacher which follows our kind of in-person model so let's say I have um, you know four teachers I'm going to use an elementary example just because of the lower numbers so I have four teachers make the math easy let's say it's 25 per class but yeah otherwise it's 96 so it's 100 kids I have four teachers I do my math right yeah Mm -hmm. if half of my students decide they're going to just do online or half the parents decide they'll do online. So now I have 50 kids online. I have 50 kids who show up. I can't take the 50 who showed up and split them across the four teachers because somebody's got to teach the kids who are online. Correct. It also doesn't break down neatly between, you know, three classes of, well, 
It could be. It could be two classes of in-person and two classes online. Or so, could it be um, one teacher teaching the 50 kids online because that's a distance learning model, which is a little less uh, demanding for interaction. I mean, if right, if so you're doing it. so those are so the now you've questions. got three teachers that could be working with 50 kids in person, right? Um, and one teacher, maybe one of those 24 percent who are um, uh, suffering from underlying health conditions and they're at a higher risk and more vulnerable to the effects of COVID, maybe that teacher winds up doing a distance learning program with a slightly larger cohort of kids than the normal uh, students teacher radio. But, I, but now you've got contract issue. Well, okay. Yes. Thank fly. you for bringing all that up because there all are class size related issues to contract and um, you know, this well, whole thing for, gets extremely well, confusical <laughs> but, right away. But but let's follow that train of thought. And, and let me just say this: for you and I, online might be easier, but not necessarily for everyone. So that's also Correct. something to consider. Okay, I've got. Let's say we've got three uh, classes in person, and we've distributed out our students, and they're smaller class sizes. Great. And we let's just assume we do have a teacher who's teaching more kids online. The it's very likely that throughout this whole process, the school is going to have to close down or even one of those classes may have to close down for a period of time, right? As you, as you just described, if there happens to be a, an, an infection and there's a positive result, you may have to shut down for a period of time. Those classes then have to flip to online, right? For however yeah. long they're quarantined. Yep. Which means now you've got to have everybody basically ready to go online, even if they're not going to go online. So now you've got a PD problem. Well, you've got a PD problem, but here I'll throw another another flip at you. Um, let's say I'm a parent and I opted for online only, but now I really need my kids to go to school. Or conversely, I just feel more secure in sending them to school. And so I want them to transi transition from online into in-person. Well, right. now, now we've, we're, 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 we're changing that stable cohort. We're, you know, let's assume that we had balanced classes before and now they may not be balanced as far as numbers go. It just starts to introduce more complexity. And then let's also say that maybe, maybe there's a, a, an outbreak in a school down the road. It's not even your school. But as a parent that's concerned, maybe then you decide you're not going to send your kid to school. And so your in-person classes, you know, half of them decide to show up. And now you have to mm -hmm. also support those kids online. So do you condense all those online classes into or the, the, the kids who are left into, into one class in person and, and then shift those teachers to teach online? Or do you ask them to teach both in person and online, which has a whole series of challenges in and of itself like it, it it starts to get confusical yes but only if you really start asking questions like that so well yeah okay but that's like saying if we just didn't test so many people our numbers wouldn't be so high uh, i mean you have to ask these questions 
you've got to be prepared for these contingencies. If, if you're not, then your plan is maybe good for a week. And then what are you going to do? Well, we, haven't even, the, we haven't even talked subs. <laughs> good luck on that one. How, how, how's getting a sub work for you when you wanted to send, say, um, a quarter of your teachers to a professional development uh, activity? There, up in my in my region, uh, subs have been a challenge to reliably find enough of them over the last several years, and partly because of the economy. Well, I can tell you, so, I you know I, I'm retired, but for my entire thirty plus year career, uh, subs were always a problem. Yeah. Um, they were when I was a teacher. They were when I was a site administrator, and they were when I was a district office uh, director. It, it, I mean, subs are a problem. Yeah. We don't have enough subs. So but, we might as well just put that on the table as a given. Right. We don't have yeah. enough subs. And So now what are you going to do? Right. And I want to table the subs because we could get way off into the weeds on that one. It's, But it is it's, it but needs you to be acknowledged as an issue. I know I brought it up. But <laughs> just just to put it as a placeholder of something that still needs to be solved, because it does, um, and because it's even more so, I think, now in this situation that we're talking about, going to become very, more difficult to not only find subs who are available, but keeping subs within a stable cohort, you know, like just mm-hmm. working at a school. So you minimize that um, contact trace you know, bubble. Right. Yeah. Um, and then even looking at per grade level, like there, there's, there's anyway, too complicated for right now. So I want to go back to the scheduling thing. Cause we, we just, we took the easy example, which was elementary. Um, and in that scenario, we did, we would end up with smaller class sizes, but we would have a big challenge. I think supporting the, the, the reality that we're not going to get neat buckets of, um, kids who are showing up in person and and choose online we're not going to have that even distribution most likely and we're also going to have to plan for the reality that we have to shift between in person and online if we're bringing kids back because that's just we we should expect that we're gonna we're gonna see that um, need okay so now if you go to middle school and you look at trying to do a middle school schedule, uh, it becomes very difficult. And I want to talk specifically about a, a couple of different schedule options that I've seen districts work on. Um, because even before getting to the the challenge of how do you support you know um, kids in person and online, assuming that yeah. every every student came back. I've seen a lot of districts look at the AABB or the AB schedule, which is basically yeah. um, you have to, you, you take your kids, you split them into two groups. And... I, ca- I call that the kick the can down the road schedule. <laughs> okay. Well, you can trademark that. But but again, just for the two or three people who may be listening, the, the AABB or the AB schedule, the concept is you, you take your the group of kids that you have that are going to come in person, right? So you, you take your online kids and you pull them out and figure about out that later. But you have a group of kids that are coming on in person. You take half of them and put them in the A group. You take half the other half and put them in the B group. The A group comes, you know, either Monday, Tuesday yeah, or Monday, Monday Wednesday, Thursday or whatever Tuesday, it is. But Thursday, they basically whatever. come two days a week in person. And then they're supported two days a week online. 
Yeah. And not to, you know, the, 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 the challenge there becomes as a teacher, you've got two groups of kids. You have to support the group of kids in person during that A day, but then you also got to support the B kids online during that day too, because we've got this um, language that says we have to provide live interaction with all kids every day. Right. Um, and you are basically going to repeat the same lesson twice because first you do it with your A group and then you do it with your B group. Which really means that teacher has now, over the course, that's why I call it kicking the can down the road. There's no difference other than a 24-hour break between the teacher being in contact with that full cohort of kids or just half at a time. Right. So the, basically you're saying the teacher has contact with the whole group anyway as a cohort. The te teacher has now contact with two, quote, stable cohorts. Right. They're, they just happen to be smaller cohorts. Yeah. Um, so um, the high school district um, here um, took a slightly different tack, uh, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, they adopted a four-by-four four block schedule, um, but for whatever reason, they don't call it a four-by-four four block. They call it a quarter system. And the idea is that instead of students uh, taking six classes per day, they only take three. Those classes are 90 minutes long instead of 50. And um, they take uh, a class, say English, from September to January. And then from January to June, they take, say, math. So um, you do your classes in groups of three for half of the school year, but basically twice as long per day. So uh, what happens is students only have to deal with three classes on any given day. Teachers only have to deal with half of their student contacts on any given day, and they only have three preps per day. So you've essentially reduced the number of contacts or interactions that kids and teachers have to deal with. Um, and, and it's sort of like the A-B schedule, but it really doesn't kick the can down the road. It splits everything and cuts everything in half. Um, well, it from a cognitive load perspective too it, it, it oh there are so many educational benefits to a four by four block um but you, it, you you still have you still have kids coming alternating days though because it doesn't it doesn't split the number of students you have on campus um it doesn't split the number of kids you have on campus but it splits the number of kids you have in your class, right? As a teacher, I, I have so I'm only, only I only three have, preps, not six. Right? No, I get it. I guess what I'm asking is in a, in a socially distanced classroom environment, though. Well, I I guess I, but the other side of it is what what the district is doing is they're saying that in classes where distance learning is relatively, and I use that intentionally. Um, easy both for the teacher and for the student so classes that aren't activity or lab based um they do those courses at home so if you so, have an english okay. class so, for so example, they have a four by four 
They have a four by four block, but it's online. Oh, uh, classes that are activity based. So science classes, for example, um, and then performance classes, band, performing no, arts. See, up here they told us no, no band, uh, no instruments, um, nothing that generates aerosol. Yeah, which um, um, that's not the approach at this point the district has taken, but given the county di guidelines and the trajectory of um, the rate of infections, um, you know, they may reconsider. But kids would only be coming to school for very short periods of time. Yeah, so, so like... If you've got math, English, history, social science, um, you would only come to school for the science class. The yeah. English, math, and social science classes you do in a distance learning model. Okay, so 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 that's a pretty straightforward hybrid. But that means in a in a four by four box. So they're probably only on campus one day a week then, or not one. Yeah. Day. Okay. Or one period per day. One period per I day mean, is what it, I meant. Yeah. So one I, period I don't per day. know that they've worked out exactly what they're going to do in terms of that. But what? it you mean does. they don't have all the details laid out yet, Mike? You know, what is, what's uh, the... here in Mayberry, I'm, things just move I'm slow. Not, I, hey, I'm <laughs> not, I, I feel that's the way everybody is, that, that when you start getting into the details, then you go, oh. But that does seem to make more sense, particularly for a high school with transportation, because you could basically really limit the number of kids you're bringing for that per period time. I would think, right? You, you, your transportation routes would basically be running all day, though, because you got to move um, kids on and off campus all yeah. day. Yeah. So you're going to run a a public transportation system. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, but I mean that does kind of make sense uh, if you have transportation to deal with, because that's a whole other thing to to think about, especially if you're in a place where the social distance guidelines for transportation are like you know one kid every other seat. Um, Except I've been told, like Ventura County Office of Ed has said they're not going to social distance on their buses. Um, but how does that make sense? I mean, unless unless it's a short duration, they keep the windows open, everybody's wearing a mask. But even then, I guess they're all facing one way. It's kind of like a I plane. Know. I don't know. I guess. I don't know. That's that's what I mean by, you know, when you hear the different guidance, it sometimes it just doesn't really seem to make sense. Okay, so so back to scheduling. That is a very interesting schedule, and 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 I'm I'm wondering how my. I mean, it would look the same at a middle school. Yeah. In the sense that you would basically be taking, I think we're a six period day, so we would take three periods. Right. And and remind me because I remember when I was back in high school, we we had a big discussion about switching the block, and there was this. I think it's been kind of proven to not be true by research. But there was this big concern that if, if kids didn't have math all the way up until the test, the state test, and they, they wouldn't do well, right? So that, that was one of the reasons why you wouldn't want them, like, having math in the second semester only. Right. Because then you'd worry that they wouldn't do well on the state test. But that... I, it's I think not I'm, borne out by research. Right. That's, that's what I was going to say. So. Yeah. But I think a lot of people have that conception, which is why the block schedule is not more... Yeah, they popular. do. Um, yeah. Okay, so so I, I mean, kudos to uh, kudos to the district for trying something different. Yeah. Um, and they've got a pedagogical reason to do this regardless of COVID. But it seems that they found it easier to create um, a sort of hybrid model that's going to minimize the stable cohort sort of requirement um, by essentially on a daily basis 
cutting the number of kids a teacher deals with in half. Right. Um, well, and also um, by by going to an, a, a primarily online model for instruction, right? I mean, core core classes will be online. Core classes except science. Except will science, be right? Yeah. So. Yeah. The science, you know, labs and that kind of stuff. So, well, contrast that with with some of the other districts that I've seen. Um, I guess I can own up to including my own. And, and looking at an A B type schedule uh, to 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 I guess maintain that kind of per period um, experience. But but really think about this. It's because the because that sounds like Oxnard High School Union District has opted for online just to start. In thinking about how, if you're bringing kids back onto campus, your schedule really has to have some kind of alignment if you're in person to what it would look like if you if you um, then have to go and be online only, right? And so, yes, I think depending on how you look at it when you're looking at designing your schedule, it can inform what options you consider, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's another part of the the challenge that has been up here is that you know up until a week and a half ago nobody really knew and there were just a lot of assumptions being made and we still don't know and that's the other that's the other thing no nobody's going to know what the conditions on the ground are like until the day before school starts i mean cuomo said it he said parents are going to make a decision the night before school starts about whether they're feel comfortable and confident sending their their kids to school And, and as a parent i can totally appreciate that sentiment right um well sure um you know and there's uh, there's another aspect to this and it's just a a logistic and communication problem but we're getting really close to when school's going to start it's like Uh, four to eight weeks for for most districts so that's in the window of starting to create some anxiety from parents about Okay, what's this going to look like? What sort of logistical considerations do I have to have if we've got this AB hybrid four by four block? I mean, well, and teachers too, and and, for sure, kids too. Yeah, and and I think you know, school has been traditionally over. It's it's usually it's a very stable thing, right? You 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 know, you know when school starts, you know when it ends, you you know what the schedule is during the day i mean all of that is very has been a uh, and then you plan your life around it pretty much it's highly predictable right that's a good and what, what's happening what's happening is we're in what um there's an acronym that that i learned that i i think is really valuable and it's vuca v-u-c-a volatile uncertain uh complex and ambiguous and that sort of environment describes exactly where we are now. It's a military term, and it's it's the, an acronym for the battle space. And how you deal with issues in a VUCA world, as opposed to a stable, predictable, you know, like we're used to with regular school. You get a calendar approved. Everybody knows what it is months and months in advance. You know when school's going to start. You know when the vacations are. You know what time kids are going to show up in the morning and what time they're coming home in the afternoon. It's all there. It's all predictable, and um, and everybody can deal with it. Yeah. Flip that into a VUCA environment, and people who um, have to prepare for that, but they're not getting 
any really good actionable information, I mean, it's easy to understand why people would get so frustrated uh, and then say, man, I got to find an alternative. You know, and the, the homeschool business is booming right now. Yeah. Well, uh, I, our system, uh, and I say our system, just in general, the education system, uh, as you said, was not set up for nor designed to be to exist in in a VUCA environment. You know, so yeah. we are not the military; we are the public education system, and so that has been, I think, one of the uh, big stressors on the system as a whole uh, mm-hmm. is that we're now operating in that environment. Um, getting getting back to scheduling because I I want to go back and just talk a little bit about you know looking at looking at an elementary school. Um, schedule where to me you know and, and, and thinking about VUCA how do, how do you prepare or or how do you how do you adapt to you know uncertainty I think in terms of being uh, flexibility right building in the maximum amount of flexibility that you can yeah so contingency can adapt. planning right yeah contingency planning not locking yourselves in yourself into one way to think about how we're going to approach this um uh, however, that is a different mindset um, to traditional school planning. So when I think about, you know, at an, ele- at an elementary level where we are, you know, looking at not knowing potentially what our grade level configurations will look like as far as percentage of students and percentage of teachers who are, you know, available to be back in the building or want to come back to the building or, um, you know, what that looks like with our families, how do you build in adaptability and flexibility into your planning so that, you know, the day before school starts, you don't have a fixed rigid thing that isn't going to work. And then you're going to have to change on the fly. Right. And how do you include a communication plan to let parents know, okay, here's what we're doing. But if it changes and we're forced into a position of having to increase, for example, the number of distance learning um, courses or opportunities for kids, this is what you kind of need to know is going to happen. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about is this concept of, um, you know, if, if we try to think through the problems and ask the questions and then think differently about what this might look like, when we start saying, you know, we're, we're back in our, you know, 30 stu- or 24 students to a teacher, if we think in that assignment possibility, right? There's a lot of potential for variability in that one to twenty-four relationship. However, if you step back a little bit and you look at a you know the the four to ninety-six relationship, so now we look at those ninety-six students in relationship to a team of teachers at a grade level. Now within that team, that grade level team, there's potential for more flexibility, right? Because we haven't locked ourselves into a, a fixed one to twenty four relationship, knowing that those things are going to change, um, and and just thinking from a practical perspective, you're still staffing at your contracted ratio, right? But you're looking at how can a team flexibly support all of those students versus, you know, getting stuck in a place where your numbers don't split evenly, and now you've got you know really mm-hmm. unbalanced classes mm-hmm. and you may have to shift kids from one teacher to another and what you really want to build is stability for the kids 
and also some stability for the teachers. So just just the idea, and I, you know, it may be crazy. Who knows? I have a lot of crazy ideas. But even when you're thinking about, you know, being flexible, because we don't know what we don't even know what this is going to look like two weeks after we start. Nope. The idea that that grade level team embraces and supports and, and is introduced to the grade level of kids, so the kids all know who those teachers are, so that you know we know through this that relationships are very important. And we also know through this that we're going to have life circumstances. And for whatever reason, a, a, a teacher may have to step back for a minute. And we want to make sure that we're in a position to support all of our kids, right? So it's just thinking, how do we, how do, we do this in a flexible way that, that doesn't lock us into a situation where we have to basically go and reconfigure everything on the fly? And, and that whole concept of, shifting from in-person to online and then shifting back um you know even if we're talking by by classroom or or school um i don't know that people have have fully thought through that um i think a a lot of folks are just trying to look at you know how do we start what is that first week going to look like and as you and i kind of know um if you're not thinking a little bit long term and and the the choices you make limit or expand the choices you have down the line right so yes i i i totally agree um but i I was thinking it in terms of contingencies um we can look at recent history and we can make some pretty safe assumptions about things there was a case in was it georgia a ymca camp Mm -hmm. where an adult showed up, had a fever, um, tested positive. They closed down the camp, but then a whole slew of people in that camp also tested positive. And by all accounts, that camp followed all of the screening protocols from CDC, all of the um, all of the recommendations about how you can safely get a group together in a camp setting. Um, I, I think it's pretty safe to assume that we're going to have people who show up to school that are symptomatic. Um, and those people are going to wind up infecting other people. Um, how effectively we get on the top of that is, is part of the conversation. We've already talked about it, but I think it's safe to assume that this will happen. So the severity of that, um, will, will meter the response in some respects, but, um, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to shut the school down? Are you going to close the classroom down? Which is what CDC's recommendation is. Send them home for two, uh, I think it's two to five days. Um, and that's to have enough time to get testing and get the test results back. Um, and, and then you go from there. So let's say that a kid or an adult shows up, um, has a fever, gets tested, and they are positive for the test. All of the contacts will be sent home, tested, not coming back until you have a test. And you're not coming back if you have a positive test. What are you going to do? Well, that's, that's, <laughs> that is the, the question, and that's why... Right? It's, if, uh, could we agree that uh, it's it's probably closer to a certainty 
than a hypothetical? Well, if I take the Ventura County guidelines at their word, then we're not we're talking about minimizing risk. Uh, they they have a minimum risk, a medium risk, and a high risk scenario. Um, so you can't eliminate the risk. So yeah, I mean we we it's it's something that we should be planning for mm-hmm. and hoping that doesn't happen, right? But you can't just hope that it doesn't happen without planning for it. Um, and well, in that scenario, but, if you don't, if you don't, if you haven't, at least to me, to my mindset and thinking, if you haven't accounted for the flexibility to be able to adapt to that kind of that scenario, um, with the likelihood that, you know, there's a reasonable expectation that it will probably happen, then your plan probably isn't going to be the plan that you end yeah. up going with, right? But, um, I mean, I, not to throw you under the bus, but, um, you know, conversations I've had with districts everywhere, uh, you know, the county, um, their guidelines, and, and it's from the CDC, and it makes perfect sense. It's, it's intuitively obvious that low risk means you're doing virtual classes. It's all distance learning. Highest risk is bring everybody back, run school um, in some semblance uh, like, quote, normal. And then the risk gets mitigated lower and lower the closer you get from everybody's back. So A-B schedules, um, you know, a blended model or a hybrid model or what, whatever. Um, all of those create slightly lower risk and slightly lower risk until you get to the point where everybody stays home and it's all online and distance learning. But nobody that I know of is saying what level of risk are we comfortable with as we develop our plan? And as I read the county's plan, I mean, it's it's like on page one, page two, which I take to mean this should be the first conversation. What level of risk are you comfortable with? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's again, it's a conversation that's happening in homes all across America with Mm -hmm. I'm having the same conversation with my wife about our kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 we have it, we have it at home all the time. Like, you know, we'd all love to go out. Um, but what level of risk are we willing to accept? So we mitigate that by not going to restaurants, but we do go to the supermarket and we try to mitigate that by going to the supermarket no more than once a week. But that's all risk assessment. And the conversation is about what level of risk are we willing to accept? Yeah. But well, and I, I think I just, I'd be curious to know if schools are overtly asking that question early in their planning process, because to me, that's the key issue. And what I read from, uh, like the letter that CTA sent out, uh, the, the open letter, they are leaning very heavily towards um, the lowest risk model. Yeah, I, I think part of the challenge, and I, I feel like I'm going to get run over by the bus, but part, part of the challenge is if you look at the national discourse around this, particularly, mm-hmm. it's been very politicized and it's and and, and extremely polite. And, yeah. and the majority of the conversations are really around the risk around children 
and very minimal conversations around the risk for everybody else. In for the adults. And, what, and what we know, you know, just going back to this article about or this argument about um, what can we assume are going to be contingencies? What we know is that it's probably adults who are going to be more negatively affected by um, by transmission. So you're taking um, you're taking adults off the board, which is going to have a direct impact on your schedule. Right, and and I'm, I thank you for bringing it back to the scheduling piece um, because. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the conversation around um, how do we keep people safe and what is the acceptable level of risk is, is one that all districts should be having. Yeah. And I do think it's unfortunate that um, a, a lot of the conversations are more focused on the impact to students and not looking at the whole picture and considering the impacts to staff. And that's again, just another piece of this very challenging puzzle. And when we look at scheduling, the, the impact to what is that, uh, what is the, again, level of concern, comfort, um, ability to come into work, ability to send your kids to school, mm -hmm. all of those variables, we don't know yet. Right. So even districts that have created schedules and are publishing those schedules right now don't know because they don't have all the information if those yeah. schedules are actually going to work. Right. Yeah. We no, also don't know. If We've we, never we, done this before. Yes. I, that's another good point. No. <laughs> OK. Other countries. But they, we're not other countries. Nobody here has ever done this before. This is all new. Mm -hmm. And. There's still a lot of variables out there that we don't have the answers for. And the whole landscape could change next week. And that's the other thing that's that's really challenging. I go well, back. I think if you if you look at um if you, if you look on a weekly basis over say the last four months, um everything will change in a week. Right. I mean that's probably a safer bet than saying everything will stay the same. Um, I go back and I look at it this way to, to try to bring it back to scheduling and, and um, wrap up our conversation here um, without getting myself into too much trouble. Um, but it's okay. Nobody listens to this anyway. <laughs> from, a, from a scheduling perspective, just thinking about that as one piece of this big, gigantic puzzle. Um, the, the schedule really can't be thought of in terms of what does it look like as a schedule when we're in person and then what does it look like as a schedule when we're fully online or what does that look like in between because consistency both for teachers and for students and for parents having a schedule where you are able to move in between those different environments I think is really important to maintaining any kind of consistent and, and Jen Roberts talked about this, that consistency of learning environment, right? Right. Yeah. Because you don't want to basically build a schedule that is in person that only works when you're in person. And then you have to switch to online because what if we all get locked down again, which could happen, right? Yeah. Now you have to switch to online and you're going to have to switch your schedule, right? To make that work. Mm -hmm. What happens if you, and I'll just 
unless a high you know there's some several high school districts around us have committed to online only to start those high school districts when you look at their schedules i'm not sure that those schedules may i'm not sure that those schedules kind of like what we were talking about with oxnard although it sounds like it would probably could those schedules may work when you have, when if you're able then to bring kids back in person but what if they don't and then you have to change your schedules up then do you look at making schedule changes like at the semester break or the quarter or you know, because you may have to shuffle kids into classes, uh, different classes. Right. Um, if you look at the hybrid option, there are so many challenges that I think of around that just with, um, y- you know, we, we didn't talk about. Um, yeah. Well, we didn't. look, I, I think I think there are two answers. Um, you either bring all the kids back or you do it um, distance learning. I, I think anything in between creates so many logistical issues that it's not pragmatic to to have the conversation well we didn't really talk through it but i'll take your word for it because i actually (laughs) i tend to agree i mean the the hybrid option does not solve um you know stability for child care for parents um it creates this dissonance for for students moving in and out they're basically moving in and out of online learning and in-person learning every week Yep. Um, or maybe ch- every day. Or maybe every day, depending if somebody goes A, B, A, B. Uh, yeah. It's a challenge for teachers to, to, to plan and, and support that. And I've, I've seen, you know, districts say, well, we're just going to turn on broadcasting in the classroom while instruction happens. And the kids on the other end of that feed are just going to sit there passively and watch the class. Right. I mean, that's not learning. That's, that's horrible pedagogy. Right? So. Yeah. I have not seen a really good solution for how do you support kids who are in class and then how do you support the kids who are online? Well, I should take that back. We know hybrid blended learning models can be successful and they can work, but I don't see a lot of people talking about what an actual solid hybrid blended learning model should look like that could support that. And And what are the best practices that teachers need to embrace? The legislatures did not do us much favors in the way they kind of prescribed what learning should look like, um, particularly around the, the, you know, this desire for, you know, hours of Zoom live instruction happening uh, every day, right? It's, yeah. it, it, it goes against what we know about blended learning and online learning and, and what that should look like, unfortunately. You know, the power of asynchronous time-shifted learning and you know, also the power of synchronous, you know, live interaction and, and relationship building in, this, in that piece. Right. But it's just disappointing to see those, those, the way that conversation has evolved. Um, anyway, I, now I've got off on a tangent. Um, there, but I think the, it's an important point. And, and that, is, you know, I, I, you know, we can hope that we have a little more vision and a little more innovation at a time when, Nobody knows. Um, we, we know things that won't work, um, and and we know that the logistical issues are very very close to being insurmountable. So let's just take that as a given and and try to step out. It I, it disappoints me that we didn't have any sort of consideration of innovation and and that kind of stuff from the legislature. Uh, the paradigm is that we've had school for over a hundred years and we need to get back to it as soon as possible. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and the opportunity to have that conversation was like a month ago, and you know, now we're. Yeah, and it didn't really happen, did it? No, and now we're you know four to six weeks out, four to eight weeks out, depending, and we just need to get going on a plan, whatever that plan happens to be. I think you know we've we've kind of we've waited for the guidance to come out, and believe it or not, I think we're still waiting on some guidance to come out from our county health department, uh, particularly around special ed, which is a whole other conversation. Um, yeah, the Ventura County. Um plan has a has an entire section that talks about special ed but it's it's usually problematic and it's problematic from the standpoint of this whole idea of in-person learning in small cohorts that don't stay together very long um in these areas where um you know you can do appropriate social distancing uh it's 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 a huge huge challenge yeah. Well, and I think we can all agree that there are definitely challenges around supporting our special education students remotely and, you know, looking at groups that if we could get groups back and prioritize needs for face-to-face instruction, special ed students would be, you know, top of that list. Um, the real, the challenges that I'm, I haven't seen the guidelines, but, you know, just in thinking about how we support our special education students and, and the whole concept of stable cohorts starts to break down when you talk about, um, you know, special education mm-hmm. services and, um, you know, support services and pull out services and then adults pushing into the classroom. I mean, it, there's just, you know, if the goal is to maintain a, a stable cohort with minimum um, number of adult interactions, it, it breaks down pretty quick, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, I think, well, <laughs> there are no easy answers there may not even be good answers um but regardless we're going to have to come up with answers at some point Uh, and here we are on the podcast that never never comes up with any answers so at least there's no pressure here to do that um but you know i mean it's fascinating to me uh from the standpoint of there's a lot of really smart capable people trying to solve these problems um and in some respects, I think, um, you know, we're kind of not prioritizing the questions, or at least the way that, that I would think would be more effective, but that's just me. But we got a lot of really smart people who care a lot about kids and teachers, and nobody seems to be able to come up with something that is like, you see that plan and you go, oh, yeah, there we go. It's just not out there that I've seen. No, and that tells me again that my, as you so uh, accurately described VUCA, that we very much like the fog of war. We are operating in an environment at the yeah. moment that um, we may just be in a position where we have to make decisions based on what we know at the time, and continuously evaluate and adapt and make new decisions as the situation changes. I mean that's. As much as everybody would like to have certainty, and believe me, 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 you know, more than anyone, I, I feel at this point, uh, we're just not in that position to be able to say this is the way it is. We we can say this is the way we think it will be, and and we could even say this is the way it will be, with the caveat that it That's may be different. Change right. next week. It may yeah. it may change next week. 
Um, and I think that's just a, it's a difficult place to operate in, especially if you've never had to operate in that space before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I have to remember that too, because, you know, well, you and I have both operated in that space before, right? So our perspective on that is a little different, but, um, it's, it, it it's, it's incredibly frustrating and anxiety driven and not the position we all want to be in, but it's the position we're in because it's a global pandemic. So as they used to say in the army, just suck it up, keep moving <laughs> forward. <laughs> Embrace the suck. That's and here it. we are. So, yeah. Ah, well, it's like my therapy sessions. We got to do this more often. <laughs> So do you feel better? Uh, no, no. I mean, the, the, the questions are still out there and the answers are few and far between. But, yeah, you know, um, if anybody's listening to this and they think they've nailed a schedule uh, for oh, either, either elementary, middle school, high school or whatever, yes, please do share because um, I think we would all like to know. Um, and I don't mean just a nice schedule on a spreadsheet that looks good. I mean, like really thought through how it's going to work and what are your contingencies and, yeah. you know, what's, what's, what's plan B, C, D, and E, uh, when things start to go haywire, cause things know. will start to go haywire as soon as you implement the plan. That's the one thing we know about a plan. That is true. Well, I mean, I guess my reassurance, my my, uh, was it Linus blanket? My, my, the thing that I, I know we can do online, right? I mean, I know, you know, if we get put into a situation where we're locked down, I, I know we, we can do online. I know for many districts, and now I am talking specifically about my district. I know my district can do online because we have the technology. Um, we've, we've invested in the professional development. We, we planned, Towards the end of last year, we, we upskilled teachers around asynchronous content creation, right? I, I, I am very confident in that. Um, I'm also confident in what you said was the second option, which is a full return, but not how you do that following all the guidelines and keeping everyone you know, safe or yeah. you know, with, with a minimal risk. Um, and I think that's where the, the challenge is. Uh, yeah, but I mean, so. recognizing that that is a high risk alternative, right? Mm-hmm. So, well, if you're I, going to do it, you have to accept that this is a high risk alternative. And I, you know, and that's that's was one of the interesting takeaways I took. I think it was from the Ventura County plan, right? Is it was kind of um, it talked about? It was one of the first plans I saw that actually talked about risk, and and talked about it in that way. And um, yeah, I mean, that's the reality. So. Um, Anyway, we could talk like this for another 45 minutes, which means nobody would ever listen to it yeah. for, for sure. <laughs> so um, I think we're, we're, we're at a good place. We can wrap up and uh, lots um, more to talk about. But if, if one or two people do listen to this, um, we're going to talk with Bob Dylan um, on Tuesday. Not that Bob Dylan, the other Bob Dylan. No, the real Bob Dylan. Uh, and we're going to talk to him about um, considerations associated with that higher risk environment or the more risk environment, you know, kids at school, what do those spaces need to look like? And Bob knows as much as anybody about learning spaces. And he's been spending a lot of time thinking about that topic and 
um, in this pandemic sort of environment. So I'm kind of interested to hear what he's got to say. Yeah, me too as well. I mean, there, and there, again, there's, it's interesting because there's different guidelines around um, physical distancing in the classroom and, and, you know, the potential use of barriers to, to meet physical distancing requirements and states have different guidelines around all of that too. So it'll be interesting to get, to get um, his perspective on that. So that'll be great. Thanks for going out and getting guests again. And um, I won't, well, I've already read his book. No, he has a new book that I haven't read. So we're book. good. Okay. Uh, I haven't read I've that ordered one. So. It. Well, you never read the books for the podcast. Anyway. That's true. I do not. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have a chance to listen to him. And then, you know, there's lots of topics around this. I was thinking maybe we should rename the podcast uh, Teaching and Learning in the Age of COVID um, because that seems to be. <laughs> I really. I really hope that would be a very temporary podcast title. I but, do too, um, but there's a whole other topic we could get into, which is how long do we actually have to be doing this? So, Yeah. Um, I would be happy to go on a prolonged hiatus from that podcast when it became evident it was no longer needed. So, um, Yes. That's anyway. the one I'd like to be obsolete and irrelevant, irrelevant real quick. All right, Dr. Vollmert. As always, pleasure talking to you. Uh, We'll talk to you Tuesday. All right. And that's another episode. We'll talk to everybody next time. Music, Welcome to the Show by Kevin McLeod.